0: Hello! Welcome to the ape episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello! I'm here with Elizabeth Spires, formerly of Duke University. (laughs) (laughs) we are going to talk about student loans of course we're going to talk about the forgiveness thereof and what it all means we are also going to talk about dan price the woke ceo and his comeuppance his downfall and yes we are going to talk about apes we're going to talk about the retail investors in amc the movie cinema chain and what the hell is going on with that stock we also have even more student loan stuff in the slate plus it's all coming up
1: For free at Luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Boyd were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: So, Elizabeth, I have heard distressing news. Is it true that you are not getting any student loan debt forgiven?
2: That is true, but because I don't qualify. And I'm fine with that. i I'm really happy about this new development.
0: Are you just too rich? Is that your problem? <laughs>
2: I am, but the bar (laughs) for that is not very high. So under the new program that Biden announced on Wednesday, if you make, I think, 125K or below, you're eligible for student loan forgiveness, potentially up to 20K. And the administration is making a lot of other modifications to how loans can be repaid back that are really beneficial for student debt holders who are not me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Who
0: are not you? <laughs> so th- I've seen there is nothing I hate more than talking about student loan debt relief, to be honest. Like, it is one of these subjects where everyone barrels in with extremely strongly held pre existing opinions. And all they want to do is tell everyone else that they're wrong. And some people are extremely opposed to it, and some people are extremely in favor of it. And both sides seem to hate what Biden did this week because it didn't go far enough for half the people and it went too far for the other half of the people. But I feel like the one person who's being like sensible middle ground, yeah, this seems good, is Emily Peck.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, Felix, I uh, was agreeing with you completely until the announcement this week, because until the announcement this week, it was just a lot of like annoying people on Twitter kind of fighting about it. Although behind the scenes, there was like a lot of activism around And demands for student debt relief that kind of spurred this move from the Biden administration. But if you look into the details, like I know a lot of Republicans are saying this is, you know, this is like a handout to like engineers, doctors and lawyers. And it's like for the elite. But if you look into the details, the majority of student loan borrowers are people who did not actually finish and get a degree. A lot of the people getting debt canceled, I think about 60% were people who took out Pell Grants, and those go to the lowest income students. A majority of the people, I believe, who hold student loan debt are Black. I mean, this is a very progressive policy. I think it's it's good. Those are the people you want to help get like a good leg up in life. And that's what Student Debt Relief does. It frees you up from the yoke of debt that holds you back. You know, it lets people go and get more education if they want to. I spoke to people who moved or bought a house or were able to make rent. Like this is quite progressive. But
0: that's two different things. The people you talk to were the people who benefited from the student loan debt moratorium Mm -hmm. on payments. Student loan debt moratorium on payments is actually much bigger in terms of its effect on people's cash flows than the debt relief that was announced by Biden. For one thing, it applied to everyone. It doesn't matter what your income is, it applied to you You could be earning a million Mm dollars a year and you could have $400,000 of debt and all of the interest on your $400,000 of debt, even with your million dollar salary, was completely zeroed out for the basically the past two and a half years. Mm-hmm. So that was a massive giveaway. I think that was correct in terms of the criticism that that was a regressive giveaway. A lot of that money wound up going to rich people who didn't need it. The mm-hmm. student loan forgiveness is on principle, not on interest. And so in terms of the amount of interest payments you're saving, it's relatively small compared to... Interest payments that were saved up until now under the moratorium. It's a stock versus flow thing. But you're right that it helps your net worth and it helps your debt to income ratio. And that makes it easier to do things like borrow money for a car or a house. And it just takes this kind of psychic burden off people when they look at their student loan balance, which for most people is not in six figures, right? For most people, it's in that sort of $20,000 range. And if, you, if that balance goes down by $20,000, that's
1: huge. Well, for some people, that's it—that wipes yeah. out their debt. And the people at, whose debt is going to be wiped out, who only have ten or twenty thousand dollars in debt, those are the people who need it the most. Those are the people that probably didn't finish and get a BA and can't leverage, you know, a degree into higher pay. Those are the people really struggling with debt. So, in that way, also, I think. It might seem like a small amount to, like, the doctor I spoke to yesterday, but it's not a small amount to someone who went to get a, an associate's degree at a community college, didn't even finish, and is carrying, like, maybe, like, $9,000 of debt, and it wasn't until recently, until the moratorium, was, that debt was going up and up and up because of the interest, you know, so... This, all the political arguments aside, this is going to really help a lot of people who actually really need help. It's not the usual tax cut for corporations that people yeah, don't get nearly it, as upset about, weirdly.
2: And I think people who, depending on which side of the debate they're on, have a sort of middle model of who the person this is helping is. You know, I saw there was a conservative commentator yesterday who tweeted something like, what do you think of the ethics of giving $10,000 to someone who hires caretakers and the caretakers are cleaning out their grandma's bedpan. And I just thought it's strange that she thinks that the person getting relief from this is the person who can hire the healthcare worker and not the healthcare worker. Because most of the people who are finding real relief from this program are not people who went to Ivy League colleges and racked up 400 k in debt and make million a million dollars a year. And in fact, th- those people aren't eligible. The doctor you spoke to probably isn't eligible. Not eligible. Uh, but a lot of people rack up debt just going to trade school or, or community colleges for a couple of years. And so the, the people that this is helping are basically, you know, when you go to the doctor, whoever is giving you your vaccination shot. I think it's it's been politically advantageous for People on the right to sort of paint the typical recipient of forgiveness as basically a rich, unemployed person who's just exploiting the system. But when you dig into the demographics, that's not it at all. So
1: someone with a like degree in fine arts that should have known better than to take out yes. loans <laughs> at all. But that's not the reality yeah. of it. But also, one,
0: one of the things that capping it at that $20,000 level does is that it really gives the bulk of relief to people who only have undergraduate degrees the the stereotypical feckless upper middle class MFA graduate who racked up two hundred thousand dollars learning how to write poetry doesn't get you know much if any, relief here. And I think that was definitely the kind of stereotypical person who people wanted to avoid giving relief to. And we can debate whether or not that person should get relief. But I think one of the key things here that I wanted to point out was the way in which all of this dates back to 2010. Like, people think of this as Biden making a promise during the presidential election, and then finally coming through on that promise towards you know, the end of his second year in office. But none of this would have been possible if Obama hadn't nationalized the student lending system and basically said the federal government is going to make all of the student loans itself instead of guaranteeing private sector loans. The federal government can't forgive a loan it doesn't hold. And so really, we needed that nationalization back in 2010 for any of this to be possible. And maybe there was like a long game here, but I don't think so. I think back in 2010, when Obama did that, all of the fiscal estimates were that this would make the government money and the government would wind up like turning a profit on those student loans. In fact, the government's going to wind up losing half a trillion dollars on this. But like, you needed that action 12 years ago in order for what's happening today to happen.
1: It seems like the next logical step would to move away from loans into just grants. Like, it,
0: Well, that's what Pell Grants are, right? So they're doing that. They're doubling the Pell Grant or they're trying right. to double the Pell Grant.
1: And that makes total actual moral sense to me because the Pell Grants go to kids from families earning like $30,000 or less who really can't afford to take out loans at all. But I guess the program had dwindled to where the grants like weren't really enough and they had to be supplemented by loans, which doesn't really make sense. The whole idea of giving people loans to go to undergraduate, it just seems like just giving them this big rock to carry with them.
0: I don't think the Pell Grant system had dwindled. I mean tuition has come up a lot, but I'm not sure there was ever some like wonderful Halcyon era where people just used their Pell Grants to pay for everything and that was all they needed. There was always a combination for the very poor. They needed scholarships from the college and Pell Grants and they'd put stuff together and maybe they gave the job. And it is becoming harder because tuition is so expensive these days to cobble together that kind of ability to pay for college, especially if you're someone who doesn't get into Harvard or something. If you get into Harvard, that's fine. They'll pay for everything. But for most people going to college, that's not an option.
1: It just feels like the federal government is maybe moving away from loans in that In addition to giving the debt relief, it's also, and Elizabeth mentioned this, reforming the way people pay back the loans. So you will only have to pay 5% of your income as opposed to 10% of your income. And then after, I think, 10 years, they want to just have you be done with paying back your loan. Like, this is a big deal.
0: So after 10 years, they have this program that has officially been in place for a while, but has not really worked in practice, which is that if you work for the government or certain types of nonprofit for 10 years, then your debt gets forgiven. And people took that at face value, and then they did it, and then they found out, especially during the Trump years, that the Department of Education just wasn't forgiving the debt for various technical reasons that no one understood. And now they're coming out and saying, no, we're really going to forgive the debt if you do that for 10 years.
2: You also have to sort of take into account what the underlying assumptions are behind why these things exist in the first place. And in theory, they exist to allow people from lower income households to experience class mobility by sending the next generation to college. But if they graduate saddled with debt, then that completely undermines the entire theoretical reason why these programs exist and points to structural flaws I would push back
0: on that. I think that you get real advantages of going to college, especially if you graduate, or pretty much only if you graduate. But if you do graduate from college, if you look at the cohorts and the statistics, you wind up much better off than if you don't, regardless of whether you graduate with debt. It's not like the existence of the debt completely undermines the economic benefit of the degree. It doesn't. The economic benefit of the degree is greater than the amount of the debt.
2: Yes, I, on average, I think that's true. But if you graduate, it depends on the degree, what field you're going into, and how much debt you end up with. It, it was sort of astonishing to me that Obama just paid off his student loans maybe a year or two before he went into office. Yeah, we shouldn't have a system. Well, he went
0: to law school.
2: Yeah, but really? he's not the. I know a lot of people who still have debt and they only have an undergrad. The purpose of the system is not that. You go to college and you get a degree and you end up paying for it well into your middle age. Or for some people, you know, there are people who are retiring now and they still have student debt. That's crazy. It's counterproductive, I think.
1: There are parents with student debt who are now taking out loans for their children to go to school as well. Yes. That's a little bananas.
0: I do think that most of these anecdotes, if you look into them, wind up referring to graduate school of some description if you're still paying off loans 30 years after you went to college chances are that's not an undergraduate or not solely an undergraduate i I
2: don't know i mean i know a lot of we all know a lot of journalists who are still doing that so it, it depends on the field
0: but yeah i think in general as someone who grew up in a system where tertiary education was basically free that was great and I mean, it felt great to me because I was one of the people who went to university. So, again, if you look at the socioeconomic makeup of the people who go to college, it is overwhelmingly like the upper middle classes. Like virtually everyone in the upper middle classes goes to college. You know, what is it? Like half the population winds up going to college at all. So that's basically the top half socioeconomically of the population goes. The bottom half doesn't. That's one of the differentiators between like one of the big class differentiators is like did you go to college and if you just make college free then that's basically just a huge giveaway in terms of value to the top half of the population economically speaking
1: changes who go if you make it free then it changes the demographics of who's it, gonna it, go it kind of does and it kind of doesn't
0: like you know it the reason why people don't go to college is not mostly that it, they just can't afford it. or they, I mean, the point is the there, there are lots of reasons why.
2: It's a big factor for lower-income people, especially if their parents didn't go to college. It's a big factor.
0: But look, as I say, I grew up in a country where college was free. And if you looked at the socioeconomic makeup of people who went to college, it was still the richer half of the population was basically the half going to college.
2: Oh, of course. But don't you think more lower-income people probably went to college where you grew up than where I grew up? Sure, absolutely. I yeah. not disagree. No, at that, the margin, you know, it makes it, a
0: difference.
2: Yeah.
0: I'm not disagreeing that it makes a difference at the margin. I'm just saying that it is marginal.
1: To go back a little bit to the political argument, and we should also talk about inflation. But there was this great interview on Fresh Air recently with an author who was looking at the history of, like, who goes to college in the United States. And after World War II, we had the GI Bill. And it really, like, opened up college to a lot of people who normally wouldn't go and opened up their eyes culturally. And you could kind of, like, paint a line between, like, the GI Bill and, like, the social unrest of the 1960s on college campuses and, like, the wokeness. Of the kids today colleges opens up people's thinking and opens up their minds culturally and like leans democratic so you can kind of think about the biden administration's move is like a way to like Make sure people get college educations and like vote Democratic. Am I too just out there on a limb with this? I think I'm right.
2: I think that's a popular Republican talking point, (laughs) which is that uh, education indoctrinates everyone into liberalism. But I think the more likely thing that happens is it just exposes people to a wider variety of viewpoints and experiences. And when you expose people to a wider variety of particularly experiences and different types of people, they do tend to liberalize.
0: Let's talk a little bit about inflation. The big thing that r- contributed to inflation, if anything, did, in terms of student loans was the moratorium for reasons that we've already talked about because it applied to everyone in full rather than just being targeted at people making five-figure incomes. So probably overall in terms of CPI inflation, this isn't going to have a huge effect. But the one more interesting question is what's the effect going to be on Tuition inflation, because this is a an area where people get very excited and talk about how the cost of tuition keeps on going up and up and no one can afford it anymore, and college is too expensive. And now colleges will be able to charge more and people will be happy to borrow more because they will expect that at some point in the future that debt will be forgiven just like it was this time around. Do we buy that? I kind of don't.
2: Is there anything right now that just prevents colleges from raising tuition? Sort of however much they want, and then blaming it on anything.
0: Well, no, no, no one's saying that colleges are going to blame it on future. They're, they're not, it's not going to be explicit, it's going to be implicit.
2: Yeah, but they could do that anyway.
0: Well, so my theory here is they can't, but yeah, go on.
2: You know, part of what people are asking for in terms of reforms are formalized caps on raising tuition because we don't seem to have them right now. So whether there's inflation or not, does. The fact that some people consider this package inflationary, is it going to exacerbate the fact that these colleges are going to raise tuition anyway because they just keep doing it? Or is it more like a pretense for doing something they were going to do anyway?
0: So I would push back strongly against this idea that Colleges have been raising tuition anyway, and they're just going to keep on raising tuition. If you basically look over the past 10 years or so, the amount that people pay for college has not been going up in real terms. And I have a chart in my newsletter this week which shows that, in fact, it's been coming down for private four-year colleges. It's been coming down since, like, the people who graduated in 2013. It's been coming down pretty much steadily since then. We talked about student loans a few weeks ago when there was that wonderful Slate article about it, basically saying that tuition for the vast majority of schools that aren't like Ivy League schools who can attract students from all over the world, the vast majority of schools are competing on price for students these days. The amount of freshman enrollment in U.S. colleges is down 20% from where it was in 2015. So there's just a lot more places in universities than there is demand for those places. And that supply and demand dynamic is preventing prices from going up. The amount that people pay, not the rack prices, which is something different. And I think that big overarching supply and demand dynamic is going to prevent colleges from raising tuition, effective tuition, regardless of whether this bill went through.
1: Is what you're talking about, is that also going to affect public college tuition, because that seems to have gone up because states and the federal government spend less money or are giving less money for this. So they have to make up that difference.
0: So public college tuition has also been pretty flat in real terms for the past 10 years. It's maybe up a tiny, tiny bit rather than down a little bit like the private colleges. It's still Mm. a lot lower. It's still like half. But yeah, I think if you go to a public school which used to get a huge amount of subsidy from the state and now no longer gets the subsidy from the state, then they're going to have to try and raise tuition to make up for that in some way. That's like state-level politics, though I don't think that is something that the federal government can really do anything about.
1: I think Congress could do something about that if they wanted to. What could could, they do? They could give money to the states to fund public education for college.
0: Right, but they they can't do that unevenly, right? They can't, If one state winds up being much more generous than another, if New York state is a lot more generous than Alabama, they can't sort of say, oh, well, we're going to give more money to Alabama because the Alabama students are getting less from the state.
1: Yes, they could do stuff, though. There's stuff that can be done at the federal (laughs) level that could make public school, public university less expensive for people.
2: They They could probably restrict more aggressively how federal funds are used in those scenarios. The most highly paid college administrator in Alabama right now is, I'm pretty sure, a college football coach. I feel like there there could be limitations about how <laughs> schools use federal funding in order to solve some of these problems.
1: Yeah, limitations. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, but money is fungible. <laughs> you just use the federal funding for the tuition and then use all of the other funding for the sports. <laughs>
1: Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? What's next on the list, Emily? Your cruise director this week.
1: Dan Price.
0: Dan Price. Yeah. You want to jump on this Dan Price story, which has been going on for what? Like, I feel like it's been going on for at least seven years. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So
0: fill us in on the saga of Dan Price.
1: I'm happy to. Okay. Dan Price. He's the CEO of a credit card payments company, or he's the former CEO of a credit card payment company in the Seattle area hailed at one time as the one moral CEO in America. This was in 2015. There was like this news coverage of Dan Price just like totally like celebrating this man because he raised minimum salaries in his company to $70,000 a year. Like everyone wrote it up. There was a glowing profile in the Times. He was on like Trevor Noah, like Good Morning America. Like everyone loved this guy, he had like long hair and a beard. He was kind of young, you know what I mean? And so everyone was like, this is the best guy in the world. Oh, my God. But then Businessweek published a story in 2015 from Karen Weiss, who was like, this guy is not, he's not all that. (laughs) And she kind of like dove deep into his claims, found out like he was overpaying himself and his brother had sued him for this before he raised wages for everyone. It was like, I went back and read it. It was very technical for most of the story. And then towards the end of the story, we learn that Dan Price's ex-wife has accused him of like really serious physical abuse, including waterboarding. But it's only like two thirds of the way through the story at the end. I mean, and people at the time picked up on this and he lost his book deal and yada, yada. So it seemed like he was kind of canceled, but slowly but surely this guy like, Rose from the dead of cancellation and was able to build his reputation back again, mostly through these like Twitter and LinkedIn posts where he says things like lifting someone out of poverty is the most effective antidepressant in the world. Or like there is no labor shortage. There's a shortage of jobs treating people with basic respect and everyone starts liking him again. It was really crazy. Like. I kind of watched it happen because every time this one woman I follow would be like, this guy has been accused of abusing women. Like, why are you retweeting him? And it didn't matter. Like, he would just be retweeted over and over. So while I was out on vacation, Karen Weiss, who has been on this since 2015, who has since moved from Businessweek. To the New York Times, wrote another article. And this time she had like serious receipts. She spoke to like a dozen women who have accused Dan Price of assault and abuse, including in California, a rape charge. Um, The police are recommending he be charged with actual rape. And now Dan Price has stepped down and resigned as CEO. We should say he denies all these claims. Um, So it's sort of this very long saga of like cancellation, resurrection, and now a new cancellation, which I, I wanted to talk about. I'm curious what you guys think.
0: So I have a, a good friend who reserves a special part of her little quantum of hatred that she has in her life. It's a small quantum. She's not a Haiti person. She's a very lovely person. But the one thing that she really hates in life is touchy-feely male CEOs who talk about you know, how great it is to uplift people and to and present as being very woke. It's like fingernails down a blackboard and she hates it. And <laughs> my question for you is, like, obviously, if her instinct to Dan Price was exactly that, which it would have been, she would have been right on the money. But does it read across? Is this something that we feel whenever you see these CEOs doing the kind of like weirdly humble, self aggrandizing LinkedIn posty type thing? Is that always a little bit of a red flag?
1: Elizabeth, I see you itching to say something. Yeah. So I totally
2: fell for this guy's shtick, and I'll admit it. But also, I wasn't following him that closely. I didn't see all the live, laugh, love, inspirational stuff, or that would have turned me off too. The only thing that I really knew about him was that he had instituted this minimum of entry-level salaries. And so as far as his brand is concerned, vis-a-vis me, that's sort of all I really understood about him. So I think if I had seen the sort of things that you're talking about, the quotes about uplifting people, that would have been grating to me too. It always seems like an inauthentic thing. But the bar is so low for CEOs who actually paid their workers enough (laughs) that I think that that single thing that he did, that one thing, made him seem, in my mind, like a better CEO. And so I, I didn't see that 2015 Bloomberg piece when it came out. So until this Times piece came out, I had no idea.
1: The big red flag in the Times piece that just came out was like the two of the women I think she spoke to said they met Price because he DM them on Instagram or Twitter. In one case, he was like, hey, beautiful. (laughs) That's like beyond red flag. That's like, don't respond. If the CEO of like a well-known company is just like DMing you and you're like 27 years old and he's saying, hey, beautiful. It's definitely a red flag. Like why is the CEO using Twitter to meet women. It's just, yeah, it's definitely creepy. But I also think that if that 2015 Business Week article had been written in, say, like 2018, when Me Too was like a big deal, it would have been structured really differently. I think the ex-wife, her claims would have been like at the top of the piece, and it might have had more impact. You know, the timing is interesting here.
0: Yeah, that article really went into a huge amount of detail about the legal struggle between Dan Price and his brother and how like the Uh moves that he made in terms of paying his employees more made perfect sense as like a legal tactic to not have to pay his brother so much and this kind of stuff Uh it was presented as you would expect from business week to a certain extent as a kind of like weird like this guy is trying to have it both ways business story rather than this guy is problematic because he does terrible things to women
2: There's an antidote in the Times story that I can't stop thinking about. The reporter talks to one of his exes and says they used to fight, and he would put a heart monitor on her finger and tell her that he was waiting to see if her pulse was elevated. And that if it was, that they couldn't continue the discussion because she was incapable of good judgment if her pulse was elevated, and he would note that his wasn't. And to me, this just sounded like, uh, you know, evidence of sociopathy. And it makes you sort of wonder how manipulative he was as a manager to people in in the workplace environment and how astonishingly well he was able to hide it publicly.
1: Yeah. I want you to know he also, Elizabeth, told the Today Show, it's not about making money. It's about making a difference.
2: <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> Red
1: flag. You're a CEO. It's definitely about making money. Unless you're CEO of a nonprofit, right? I'm not against making money. Do you ever feel like there's nothing new in the news? You know there are urgent things happening in the world around you, but all you hear is noise. That's why we made What Next? Our goal is to tell you the stories you haven't heard before, or maybe a different side to the story you thought you already knew all about. I'm Mary Harris, the host of What Next? And I love my job because it helps me cut through the noise of the news. And then I get to bring it to you. Together, we can figure out what next.
0: Can we segue to Adam Aaron, the CEO who is definitely not (laughs) touchy-feely?
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Who was mostly famous. If he ever had a viral moment on social media, it was because, you know, when he um, appeared on a Zoom call with, I think, shareholders at one point and then accidentally knocked his laptop screen and revealed that he wasn't wearing pants. (laughs) <laughs> it's just like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: a metaphor, though. <laughs>
0: which I have to, I have to say that I did a CNN hit myself this week, and my top half was, let's just say, it didn't match the bottom half very well.
1: But you had pants on, Felix. Don't <laughs> I had shorts you on. Okay, <laughs>
0: I had shorts on. The CEO of AMC, which, as we know, is a meme stock. It's the, the cinema chain, and. Being a cinema chain, it was very badly hurt during the pandemic, and being a stock that had name recognition and came down a lot during the pandemic was naturally the kind of stock that the Wall Street Bets crowd crowded into, and so it started going to the moon, and everyone started getting into it. The difference between AMC and most of the other meme stocks is that, in the case of AMC, the CEO really leaned into the meme status. He started issuing NFTs. He started giving popcorn to shareholders. He started popping up in Reddit forums and basically saying, hey, you apes. They called themselves apes, the people who owned the stock. Come on, apes. Let's send this stock to the moon and would actually sell stock to them. So he was basically cruising for bankruptcy because he was running out of money. And he raised money by selling new shares at this elevated level to the apes. And now 80% of the shareholder base of AMC is retail investors. And this is like an amazing success story for AMC. In a week when Cinemark, which is the owner of Regal Cinemas, declared bankruptcy or filed for bankruptcy protection, AMC is still going, and it's still going because it managed to raise all of this money from shareholders. And then this week he did the most meme thing ever, which was that he split his stock into two, but he didn't do a standard stock split where he's like everyone who had one share now has two shares. He did this, everyone who had one AMC share now has one AMC share and one Ape share, which is like a weird new kind of preferred stock. And the combination of the two is basically worth the same as what one AMC share was worth before. But now there's two meme stocks he's created and one's called AMC and one's called Ape. And I'm like, he's really committing to the bit here.
1: (laughs) Well, isn't part of it, he's maxed out how many regular stock shares he can offer. So he has this like fallback where he can offer preferred stock because I think he he asked shareholders if he could issue more stock and they said no. So this was like his second best option. At least that's what Matt Levine explained to me in an email that he sent to millions of people.
0: Yeah, no, Matt Levine has been all over this story. So if you want to go deep on this, just read Matt's post from this week. But that's exactly right. And it's not so much that the shareholders said no. There were very few, if any, shareholders who voted against his request to have more shares to be able to sell. But it's just not enough of them said yes. And it's just really hard to get a critical mass of shareholders to vote When those shareholders own like 20 shares each, you know, you need to reach a huge number of shareholders and they all have better things to do. I mean, I don't know how many shares you've ever owned in your lifetime, Emily, of like individual stocks, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you have never voted those shares in any company you've ever owned because you are a normal human being. The only people who ever vote shares of companies that they own are institutions.
1: Correct. Correct. Yeah, and this is, I guess, a bigger problem as more individual shareholders own more stocks and more companies, right? This is like the weird new world of meme stocks and individual, the rise of the retail investor and whatnot. Yeah,
0: how, how can you have any remote semblance of shareholder democracy when the shareholders basically don't vote at all?
1: It's an amazing contradiction because you think, oh, more retail investors holding stocks is democratic but they're not participating in the democratic system that is there for them to take advantage of. So it's less democratic.
0: They don't vote in primaries and they don't vote yeah. their stocks. When do they vote? <laughs> God damn
2: it. Isn't it a problem for them long term if they can't get the shareholders together to authorize more common because eventually you want the preferred to convert, right? Yes. So then what's the plan for getting them organized and able to vote to authorize it long term? Well, I mean, like it's
0: not Strictly necessary for the shares to convert. So, Elizabeth is absolutely right that in theory, if there are enough votes, then the people holding the ape shares can convert them into AMC common shares. And right now, the AMC common shares are worth more than the ape shares. So, theoretically, they would vote for that. And then it would just go back to the status quo ante, and there would just be more shares outstanding, which is what they wanted all along. But if that doesn't happen, like it's not the end of the world. He can still issue new Ape shares. He can still run the company. They still have the same economic benefits. And no one is harmed, really, by having two share classes rather than one.
1: But why are the ape shares? From what I understand, the ape shares are pretty much exactly the same as the common stock shares. Yet they don't cost the same, leading I guess some investors to try and do some kind of arbitragey stuff. But why don't they cost the same? Why are they? Why do they cost less?
0: Why? Because ju- that's just because people. Why turn out to prefer the AMC common to the ape. Because when you have an investor base that's 80% retail, and they're buying based on vibes and sentiment rather than discounted future cash flows, then they make the revealed preferences they'd rather have one than the other.
1: It's like why people buy like the brand chickpeas instead of the generic chickpeas, even though they're the same chickpeas, and one's more expensive, it doesn't actually make any more sense.
0: Oh, well, it's also just like you may, you might, Equally asked, why are AMC shares collectively, both Ape and AMC, worth anything at all, given how close they are to being running out of money? And the economics of movie theaters are not great right now.
1: No, they're bad. They even make less movies now than they used to, from what I understand. Yeah, the
0: number of movies being released per year is down quite sharply, partly for pandemic reasons. Mm. It was just much harder to make movies during the pandemic. But yeah, I think the bigger picture, you may as well just ask, why is AMC stock worth anything at all, given the economics of the cinema industry and the fact that the number of movies being made is way down, or certainly the number of movies being made for theatrical release is way down, the number of cinemas in America. It's just hard to see how the economics of the movie industry justify a share price anywhere near this. It's all memes. So at that point... Starting to ask questions like, why is this meme slightly memeier than that meme? I I don't know you're going to get anywhere asking that question. Although, apparently, Jim Chainos is doing the arbitrage and he's long the apes and short the AMC and is betting that they're going to converge.
1: Yeah, I would bet that too if I were an arbitrage type person, which I really am not.
0: My feeling is that if you go short a meme stock, which is basically what you're doing there when you're shorting AMC, like. You are you have to have very deep pockets to be able to survive the potential (laughs) price action. Let's have a numbers round. I'm gonna start this week with one billion, which is the number of dollars that the Paul Allen art collection is estimated to sell for at Christie's in November. Paul Allen was, of course, the co-founder of Microsoft, and he managed to put together a pretty impressive art collection from Botticelli to Jasper Johns. And he died in 2018. And now, apparently, his estate has decided this is the best time to try and sell it all off. So there's going to be a blockbuster auction at Christie's in November. And I think, by all accounts, this is going to be the highest value art collection ever auctioned.
1: Wow. And why does that matter in the big picture? Does it matter in the big picture, Felix?
0: I think one interesting way of looking at this is to compare art, which is an asset that pays no dividends, to, say, high-growth tech stocks, which are assets that pay no dividends. And those tech stocks have come down a lot in value as interest rates have gone up. But art maybe hasn't come down the same way. The effect of rate hikes on the art market is very different from the effect of rate hikes on the tech market, even though, in a weird way, they're both assets that should be quite susceptible to such things. And that's an interesting dynamic.
1: That is interesting. It's almost like art is valuable for its own sake.
0: (laughs) Wouldn't one like to think? (laughs) One would. What's your number, Emily?
1: My number is 4.1 million. That is an estimate from Brookings that came out this week where they said as many as 4.1 million people could be out of work right now because they have long COVID. When I was out on vacation, I couldn't help but notice signs of the labor shortage in this country were Just everywhere, like every like podunk gas station to McDonald's to department store had signs. We're hiring. We're going to pay you fifteen dollars an hour. There was this one gas station we stopped at that was just like falling apart, dilapidated kind of place that you don't really want to stop at, but you have to kind of place. And they had a sign outside that said five hundred dollar hiring bonus to work here. And I was just like, What is happening? What is happening is that there aren't enough people to fill all the jobs. And it looks like long COVID is like a major, major reason for this. And um, the 4.1 million is the top end of her estimate. The lower end is like 1 million. But this definitely seems to be a big driving factor that could use some more attention when we're talking about the labor market.
0: My gut feeling is that the grottier the gas station, the higher (laughs) the signing bonus they're going to need to pay (laughs) to people to persuade them to work there.
1: No, absolutely, but like could you have imagined, I don't know, 2 3 years ago seeing a sign like that? I mean, just no way. I just I've never seen anything like this. And also like stores closing early, hours of supermarkets, drugstores being cut, more of these like self-checkout kiosks everywhere, which listeners might know that I don't like. It's a whole new world out there, guys.
0: Stay tuned. This time next week, we're going to have a Labor Day edition of Axios Markets weekend diving into the labor market shortage. So subscribe to our newsletter. <laughs> Elizabeth, what's your number?
2: My number is $699.99. And that's the amount of money that a vintage kick-me trapper keeper is going for on eBay right now. Uh, the inventor of the trapper keeper died this week. He's, he was discovered a, a native Alabamian named Bryant Crutchfield. And over his lifetime, $75 million Trapper keepers were sold, but they died off in the 90s because of digitization. People did not want mm. physical things anymore.
0: Can someone tell me what a trapper keeper is?
1: Felix, you don't know oh my Elizabeth. God. <laughs> Enlighten him.
0: All right, I'm going to guess. This is something worth $700, and they've sold 75 million of them?
1: And no, there's something about was, trapping
0: no. things? You,
2: you would buy them for... <laughs> A Trapper Keeper was a very popular school supply in the 80s and 90s, and they, it was basically a folder that held all of your other folders, and they were sort of merchandised with a lot of pop culture stuff on the front of them, and I think probably when Emily and I were in elementary school, everyone had a Trapper Keeper, and it was like a an yeah,
1: cool expression of your
2: personal identity. A very big Gen X thing.
1: Yeah, Back to school is so not the same anymore. Elizabeth, I don't know if you've experienced this yet, but like back when I went to school, you would go after the first day and buy your trapper keeper and whatever else supplies you need. But now they like pre-order everyone's school supplies so everyone gets the same exact notebooks. There's no individuality in terms of like, there's no trapper keeper. Yeah, that's what my kid's school does. Yeah, so the world has moved on.
0: I honestly thought it was something about trapping varmints. (laughs)
2: because i said native alabamian
0: (laughs) well make no assumptions people um i think that's it for us this week i'm hoping that we might be able to answer a few more questions about student loans in the plus segment i will answer a question about people who paid off their student loans during the pandemic because that's one of my favorite things other than that thanks very much for listening thanks for emailing us on slate money at slate.com and many many thanks to jessamine molly of seaplane armada who produced this show this week from Rhode island anyway we will be back next week with even more slate money